the old pilot's plane tails, sailing off to Hawaii. There's a hot spot in the Earth's mantle that moves northwest at an impressive rate of 32 miles, just over 50 kilometers, every million years. The tectonic plate that's given rise to this particular underwater volcano is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and tens of millions of years ago, magma burst from beneath the ocean floor to form mountains that reached up towards the surface. It took many eruptions to span the distance, but eventually the tip of those gigantic basalt pinnacles broke the surface over six miles, 10,000 meters, from where they started. And the birth of the Hawaiian archipelago had begun. Polynesian settlers found the islands and made them their home, and named the largest Oahi. Europeans came to the islands, the most famous being Captain Cook, who visited them twice, the second ending in his death when he tried to recover a stolen boat. By 1810, the islands were an independent and internationally recognized kingdom until a coup d'etat led by the U.S. Minister to Hawaii and backed by U.S. troops overthrew the royal family, which resulted in the islands being annexed by the United States in 1898. Hawaii became the most recent state to join the Union in 1959 and is now the third wealthiest. Following its annexation, Hawaii became an important naval base for the U.S. Navy, so it's hardly surprising that they should be the first to attempt a flight from the U.S. mainland to the island. Aviation had already arrived at the islands in 1910, courtesy of Bud Mars, the Curtis Daredevil. To a great fanfare of publicity, he had announced that he would be demonstrating the miracle of flight from the Managua polo field. A couple of days before they began assembling his brand new, cumbersome, kite-like aircraft, tickets went on sale from the Empire Theatre and the Gunst Cigar Store. With the Curtis P-18 biplane, an odd-looking assembly of steel tubing, bamboo and wood covered in a rubberized silk was ready, the crowd started to assemble. Over 3,000 tickets had been sold, but hundreds more were standing on high ground surrounding the field for a free show. The mechanic swung the prop and the engine spluttered into life. The attending guard stood aside and Mars bumped his way across the grass field and into the air, accompanied by a roar of approval from the crowd. A climb to 500 feet and the flimsy flying machine was turned around before coming back to land. His arrival back was greeted by champagne. Mars declared the test flight a success and christened his machine Skylark. More flights were accomplished and Mars dropped leaflets over Pearl Harbor before diving on the polo field at terrific speed. On subsequent days, more crowds came, but most watchers avoided paying for tickets by standing on the rocks that overlooked the event's location. He would go on to take his flying show to the Far East, but Bud Mars left Hawaii a bitter man, 
cursing the free onlookers, since each show that he put on there lost him several thousand dollars. Regardless, he had bought aviation to the islands. It was more important to the U.S. Navy that they should establish an aerial link to this far-flung outpost of theirs, which lay 2,400 miles from San Francisco. It was a vast overwater distance and would require exceptional navigation skills, but if successful it would become a world record. The Navy gave the job to Commander John Rogers, an experienced naval aviator who had taken part in many nascent flying projects. Indeed, as a younger man, he had been carried aloft in a man-carrying kite towed by the USS Pennsylvania. Suspended by a long cable, and with his ship doing twelve knots into an eight-knot wind, Rogers got to a record four hundred feet, where he had a forty-mile view of the ocean. He took photographs, made notes, and sent signals back to the ship for fifteen minutes, before being reeled back in. Keen to sell their Wright flyers to the military, the Wright brothers had agreed to train a Navy pilot for free, and Rogers was the one chosen. His training complete, the first Wright biplane arrived at Greenbury Point on the grounds of the Naval Academy late in 1911. Rogers completed an acceptance flight, and the next day took off to fly the machine to Washington, D.C. He circled around a thunderstorm and then performed flybys of the Army Aviation Camp at College Park, before heading down the Potomac, overflying the Army War College on the way. Arriving over the capital, he flew around the Washington Monument for 15 minutes before landing near the White House and greeting naval colleagues. At the time, this was by far the longest and most successful naval aviation flight achieved. Fourteen years later, Rogers would be given the Hawaii task. As early as 1923, the Navy had submitted plans to circumnavigate the world using naval aircraft, but they had nothing with sufficient range to accomplish the task, so it was dropped, although the Trans-Pacific leg was seen to have real merit. It was decided to develop aircraft capable of a flight to Honolulu at least. They settled on a modified PN-8, designed by the Naval Air Factory and built by Boeing, and called the PN-9. It was a sleek-looking biplane, with an open cockpit, a flattened hull with large chines that ran back behind the wings, and was powered by a pair of V-12 Packard 1A-2500 liquid-cooled engines mounted in between the wings. The hull was all metal, but the rest of the airframe was wood and fabric. When the PN9s were ready, they were tested, and one flew for a seaplane endurance record of 28 hours and 35 minutes. All was ready, and the aircraft were shipped to San Diego. Plans were made for the route to be covered by guard ships at 200-mile intervals, which would make heavy smoke by day and use searchlights by night in case of ditching and to aid navigation. 
three aircraft were there, but only two could be used since the third wasn't prepared in time. One would be commanded by Commander Rogers and the other by Lieutenant Snoddy, each with a crew of four. Final modifications were made and after a few days of delay for weather, the sealed barographs were put on board, Rogers cast off and started his takeoff run. He failed to get airborne at his first attempt, so taxed around for another go. In the meantime, Snoddy got his PN9 into the air and set course, shortly followed by Rogers well below him. The two weren't going to be together for long. One of Snoddy's crew spotted a small stream of blue smoke leaking from the left engine. The mechanic crept carefully out onto the wing and confirmed that they were losing oil, and 25 minutes later, the oil pump, starved of the engine's lifeblood, gave up. The oil pressure of the big 2,500 cubic inch engine fell inexorably to zero, and with a heavy heart, Lieutenant Snoddy landed. Alighting on the open ocean, they used the good engine to taxi towards the nearest guardship, and at one in the morning, they were spotted by the USS William Jones and taken into tow. Alone now, Rogers continued on through the night, a bit concerned as his left engine was also giving trouble. The exhaust flame, clearly visible through the short stack of exhaust, was glowing yellow rather than the usual blue. It was also using twice as much oil as the right-hand engine. He mulled over the problem, but before they even reached the halfway point, he had realised that their fuel consumption was too high and Hawaii was beyond them. The engines weren't running efficiently and the tailwinds that they expected had failed to appear. He wasn't too worried, though. He planned to land beside a guard ship and take on more gasoline. So far, navigation hadn't been a problem, and he had found each of the ships marking the route. 1,400 miles into the flight, he passed the USS Reno, and he calculated he had enough fuel left to reach the USS Aroostook 400 miles away and still have a 40-minute reserve. Since leaving San Francisco, the radio compass bearings from the ships had been a bit erratic, but good enough to fly a course. Now he had to be sure to pinpoint the Aroostook accurately. The weather wasn't helping either, as rain squalls made spotting the ship difficult. They passed the USS Farragut okay, but Roger's dead reckoning was showing them north of the correct track. However, the radio bearing from the Aroostook indicated that they were actually south of track. Rogers passed the place where the ship should have been and saw nothing. He began to search north, looking for it, until his thirsty engines spluttered to a halt, and he was forced to land on the open ocean. Of the rations on board, twelve ham sandwiches, ten quarts of water and two of coffee remained, in addition to three pounds of hardtack and six pounds of canned corned beef brought along for just such an emergency. In the morning, when the sun crept over the horizon, they were still alone on the water, so they set to work to effect their own rescue.
The lower wings were being damaged by the weight of water breaking over them, so they stripped off the cloth covering, jury-rigged sails and set course for the islands. The addition of lee boards made from the metal floor plates allowed them to sail only 15 degrees from the wind. Sadly, since their landing, the transmitting side of their radio set had ceased to function, so all they could do was listen as the search for them began. Whilst the PN9 sailed on at a mighty two knots, the search began to intensify under the direction of Aristook's commander. The USS Langley hurried up from the east and her aircraft flew daily missions over the adjoining waters. Submarines and patrol planes from the Hawaiian Islands joined in and even a squadron of destroyers returning from Australia covered the areas south of the islands. For nine days the combined efforts of the searching vessels proved fruitless until the submarine R-4 spotted the PN-9 bravely sailing along some 450 miles from where it had been forced to land. Everyone on board was in good condition, despite having run out of food and water some days before. The submarine was able to tow them to the outer reef of Kauai, whereupon the harbour master and his daughter rowed out to guide them through the jagged rocks and into the safe waters. Despite the failure of their flight to achieve the goal set for them, the news of the safe arrival reached the Navy Department and a flood of messages began arriving from agencies of the government, local officials of all sorts, foreign governments and individuals. The first wave of congratulatory telegrams was followed by invitations to appear at civic functions all over the nation. Subsequent reports on the attempt concluded that, despite the crew's best efforts, the real failure was the inability of the plane to reach the efficiency attained during the earlier test flight. If it had, Commander Rogers would in all probability have achieved his goal, despite the other adverse factors, and the Navy would have proved its ability to fly to Hawaii as well as sail there. It wasn't until two years later that another serious attempt was made to achieve this journey, prompted by Charles Lindbergh's successful solo transatlantic flight earlier in the year. Following his daring feat, a rash of long-distance record-breaking flights were tabled, one of which was the Dole Air Race, proposed by a pineapple magnet, James D. Dole. He announced a prize of $25,000, some $400,000 in today's money, for the first person to fly a fixed-wing aircraft from Oakland in California to Honolulu in Hawaii. The publicity attracted a number of entrants, but the Army managed to lay a wet blanket on the proceedings by completing the flight only a month after Dole posted the prize. The attempt had been months in the planning, and it was by coincidence that it occurred just after the competition was proposed. Stationed at McCook Field in Dayton, Ohio, 2nd Lieutenant Hegenberger was an MIT-trained aeronautical engineer established in the instrument branch to study ideas in air navigation. 
posted to Hawaii, he persistently submitted requests to be allowed to attempt the record-breaking flight, but was continually refused. It wasn't until he returned to McCook that he was authorised to plan the flight using radio beacons as a navigational aid, thereby demonstrating how to navigate from a big landmass to a tiny island. Flying the three-engined Atlantic Fokker C2 trimotor named the Bird of Paradise, with Lieutenant Maitland piloting, Hegenberger navigating, and a crew of three, they took off from Oakland Airport, crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, and headed out over the ocean. With the Chrissy beacon behind them, they soon lost their beacon guidance when the onboard receiver failed. So they continued on using dead reckoning and drift readings that became nearly impossible when the cloud cover increased and they lost sight of the sea. Halfway through, they tried to have lunch from the food put onto the Fokker, but concluded that they had forgotten it. They merely couldn't find it, since it was actually hidden below the navigator's plotting table. Using a mixture of sun and star shots, Hegenberger found that they had drifted well north of track and needed a 90-degree turn to find their destination. Maitland took some convincing, but after making the turn and completing 23 hours in the air, they saw the beam of the Kilauea Point Lighthouse, only five degrees left of the nose. In darkness and dreadful weather, the story of how they fumbled their way through the mountains of Hawaii to Wheeler Field on Honolulu is remarkable in itself. All that needs to be said is that they were the first to complete the flight. The official history of the United States Air Force says it all. The flight tested not only the reliability of the machine, but the navigational skills and the stamina of the two officers as well. For had they strayed even three and a half degrees off course, they would have missed Kauai and vanished over the ocean. Of the dull air race, despite the flight lacking the record-breaking prominence, 15 were given starting positions, two were disqualified, two withdrew, and three aircraft crashed before the race, resulting in three deaths. Eight aircraft eventually participated in the start of the race on August the 16th, with only two successfully arriving in Hawaii. The winner was Arthur Gobble, and William Davis in a Travel Air 5000. Of the six unsuccessful aircraft, two crashed on takeoff, two were forced to return for repairs, and two went missing during the race. One of the repaired aircraft took off again to search for the missing participants several days later, and also vanished over the sea. All in all, Six aircraft were lost or damaged beyond repair, and ten lives lost. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. If you're enjoying Plain Tales as a standalone podcast, 
then we'd be very grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.